Hello and welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. And today we have a very special guest with us, Bernard Bars. Uh, so Bernard Bars is one of the most important researchers and writers about the topic of consciousness. And he's played a formative role in the emergence of consciousness as a scientific topic, um, starting in the 1980s and then in the 1990s. Uh, his book, A Cognitive Theory of Consciousness, um, was one of the most foundational texts in the current uh, research in consciousness. And it outlines his theory called global workspace theory, which is a cognitive theory about how consciousness works. And that's what our main topic uh, will be about today. Recently, he published an updated version of this book, along with a, an enormous amount of evidence and updated thinking, um, as the, the idea of a global workspace has been an enormously productive endeavor over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and this book is called On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, uh, published by Nautilus Press. Yeah, it's great to have Bernie on the show, and uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome, Bernie, to the show. We're so pleased to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Um, so why don't we start out with a little bit of a definition of what we're talking about when we're talking about consciousness, because we can mean a, a whole lot of different things by it. Thinking of uh, the history of the philosophy of consciousness, um, which you know sort of goes under a lot of different words that maybe refer to the same sort of thing. Um, I'm wondering if you can set the stage a little bit for how you got involved in research in consciousness and, and sort of thinking about it as, as something that could be tackled scientifically. Right. Uh, that's the crucial question. Uh, consciousness has been talked about, as far as I can tell, by every single culture that I know anything about. Uh, and that is partly because uh, people simply uh, talk about, uh, you know, waking somebody up in order to talk to them or asking them about their dream experiences, as the Jarawa uh, people do, uh, who are apparently a very ancient remnant culture from perhaps 90,000 years ago. Uh, and one of the things these people do, very interestingly, is that every, I assume every morning, uh, they discuss their dreams. And so they, uh, they posit uh, a, a world uh, of their dreams, which is also the world of their ancestors. But that's all very fancy compared to the kind of everydayness uh, of, uh, let's say you're talking to a, a classroom of uh, kids and they're six years old and they're noisy and distractible. Uh, and the first thing you do, of course, is to call their attention to whatever it is that you want to teach them. Uh, that is one way in which we access consciousness, and it's very commonsensical. The uh, difficulty historically, uh, and this even is true of William James, who is the greatest uh, consciousness uh, uh, summarizer of the 19th century, I believe, and is widely considered to be that, um, and his great book, uh, The Principles of Psychology, is about 90% empirical work on consciousness. And so he talks about pretty much all the things that we know today. Uh, but he has a difficulty, uh, a very profound difficulty, because for James, the mind is nothing but consciousness. And that means basically that he doesn't have any basis for comparison. 
And I think that by the 1970s or the 1980s, partly influenced by computers and so on, uh, we started to realize that the brain was processing language, for example, unconsciously as well as consciously. And that became really obvious to people like myself who tried to keep up with that literature uh, because it showed up in a situation called dichotic listening. And the word dichotic means that you get two different messages into your two different ears. And if you force the listener to track only one ear, let's say the left ear, that also meant that the person could not hear what was coming into the right ear. And nevertheless, the evidence showed up that whatever the unconscious stuff was coming into the right ear was still being processed up to quite a high level. Uh, and that was a very, very important realization. Originally, uh, we learned it from language and audition studies, and then it became obvious, um, I believe, in vision in the 1970s. And uh, at that time, vision scientists started to go back to Hermann von Helmholtz, who in the 1840s had proposed that vision uh, requires a lot of unconscious processing and it's intelligent unconscious processing. So these days, for example, we can't even think about eye movements in reading without thinking about a lot of unconscious processing that's involved with directing our eye movements and in the kind of snapshots that we take of whatever it is that we're reading and the snapshots that we do not take but which we infer unconsciously. The visual system does that beautifully. Uh, and so I think uh, the, uh, the actual viewpoint that we have all arrived at in the sensory sciences, and I, you can correct me on this, of course, is that uh, what we experience as conscious vision or conscious hearing or even conscious comprehension of language is simply surrounded by all kinds of intelligent, unconscious uh, little helpers, if you will. Uh, and that realization, I think, then made it possible for us to imagine experiments that uh, were extremely well controlled because we would compare uh, consciousness or the conscious flow of information in one eye, for example, at the same that there was unconscious processing in the other eye, and that is called binocular rivalry. Uh, and binocular rivalry has been known for a long time, but it was puzzling uh, to people because they did not have this computer-like uh, concept of unconscious intelligent information processing that is so enormously important in our current way of thinking about things. And the key thing there was that uh, it suddenly became possible for us to run comparison studies between conscious and unconscious conditions uh, and to imagine that they were similar, that the two streams, the conscious one and the unconscious ones, 
were similar uh, in their type of information processing. So it wasn't that the conscious one was intelligent and the unconscious one was dumb or automatic or unable to adapt or anything else like that. They were strikingly similar. And that, I think, opened the gates for experimental psychologists and by now experimental brain people as well uh, to study uh, two streams of information, the conscious one and the unconscious one. And some of my favorite work was actually done in Paris uh, by a team uh, at the uh, National Center for Research and for Scientific Research in Paris, which is their National Science Foundation in a sense. Uh, and the two scientists who were involved with that, both extremely good, uh, are named uh, Stanislas Dahan uh, and Jean-Pierre Changeux, who's also uh, the discoverer uh, actually of, uh, of some of the first uh, uh, neurotransmitter, chemical neurotransmitters. So he's a very distinguished scientist. Uh, these very good people have been interested in all this stuff and they have conducted the right kind of systematic research with brain imaging and so on. And it's gotten better and better. Uh, and that has been only one of the research lines. There have been medical research lines uh, dealing with coma, for example, because coma has been very mysterious. And today also uh, dealing with sleep and other uh, a whole crop of questions that all implicate consciousness and that all kind of require a conceptual framework with which to think about consciousness. So the gathering of the evidence over the last 30 years has really gone hand in hand with our emerging ideas about consciousness. And the key thing to understand here is that in this kind of science, which is inductive science, it's bottom-up science, uh, we don't start with definitions. Uh, we start with what are called operational uh, definitions. And basically anything is an operational definition that gives you kind of a, a solid intuitive handle uh, on the phenomena that you think might be involved. And there's a lot of guesswork in that early grasp uh, for this idea, but it's absolutely routine in the history of science. So that uh, in the Renaissance, you get Galileo, for example, uh, working on his conception of temperature. And he devised very cleverly uh, a very crude measure of temperature uh, involving little uh, glass balls filled with oil uh, that uh, went up and down in a glass tank uh, that he could see through. Um, and so you could tell um, if it got warmer, some of the little glass balls with, filled with oil, oil uh, uh, drifted up to the top and some of the others drifted down to the bottom because it has to do with the density uh, of the liquid inside of the little glass balls. And Galileo was very brilliant at this process of beginning to get a handle 
on an empirical phenomenon that at that time was not really defined because definitions come quite late in that process. Uh, what he was talking about, of course, was what modern physicists call heat. And heat has to do with the motion of molecules and so on. But that only came in the 19th century. Galileo started three centuries before that, and he had no idea about molecules, right? Or about um, quantum mechanics or about infrared light. Absolutely no idea about those kinds of things. What he did, though, and what made Galileo so important is that he found a way to uh, have a pretty good first approximation that was empirically very solid so that you could build on it empirically over a period of time. And eventually, a few centuries later, uh, Maxwell, I guess, uh, came up with the concept of heat as the central node uh, in thermodynamic theory. Uh, but that took centuries. And in the meantime, people were mostly wandering around, clutching their heads and trying to figure out what the hell this temperature thing was. Uh, so that's the way inductive science proceeds. And when I got started with this, I had done a fair amount of reading, reading in the way inductive science works. It was very much the way in which um, psychometric theory was working uh, because you had the same problem. Uh, you had these personality features that people had talked about forever in literature and history and so on, but you didn't really know how to capture those personality features and so the idea came about that what you needed to do is get any paper and pencil tests usually with questions about personality. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? And very slowly, um, people did statistical testing on this kind of thing and found out that there were correlates with certain personality features and low correlates or non-correlates with uh, other personality features. And they developed uh, the, the series of personality tests that we have today, which is very rich and very revealing. And they really do have to do with the way human personality develops over the lifetime from childhood uh, to old age. So that that was the same kind of inductive science pro uh, program that started very modestly, very um, simply, with some very, very basic ideas, and then found a way to experimentally and observationally hone in uh, on the concept that you were trying to understand. And with a lot of luck and a lot of hard work, that turned into a more sophisticated and more refined scientific concept. So that consciousness is something that emerges after 30, 40 years of work, or actually much longer, of course, because we have a prehistory, an enormous prehistory in philosophy about consciousness. Uh, and I think that uh, in the latest, uh, in the last 10 years, maybe, of research in brain science and psychology, uh, what we're looking at is a pretty good grasp 
of uh, what is happening in the brain, where it is happening, and how it relates to the difference between conscious and unconscious uh, streams of information in the brain. Good. Okay, so you said lots of uh, interesting things. And this, so with that uh, set up and sort of thinking about this uh, inductive process of going about um, trying to conceptualize something, maybe we could uh, jump into your attempt to do this for consciousness, which is um, creating an operational definition of consciousness, uh, I guess you would call global workspace theory an operational well, I guess that's a question. Is yeah, the global workspace theory actually is a theory. Uh, that is to say, it's a set of hypotheses that are testable and that appear to hang together. Uh, so this is a, not a sophisticated advanced theory. This is an early attempt to organize what is actually a very large body of information that we have by now. Uh, and the the key to that body of information kind of gelled uh, as early as 1982 for me uh, because you have to remember, of course, that we had had 200 years of really excellent research already. It was not very reputable at that time, but we had extraordinary research in sensory psychophysics, for example, uh, starting around 1800. And sensory psychophysics is what we use today for, uh, for all of our edutainment uh, electronics, right? So if you're mm -hmm. listening to audio phones or looking at a screen of some kind, that's all engineered uh, by reference to that 200 years of work in sensory psychophysics. Now, from your perspective, too, I mean, a lot's going on in philosophy at this time, um, really starting with Descartes, I guess, um, do you find a lot of the philosophy surrounding consciousness from this time onward to be helpful in in um, well, conceiving uh, the, it, or do you the, find it to be a, a block in some ways? Because it's it's it talks about very different things. Yes, exactly right. Uh, what happened? Uh, I started as an undergrad being interested in philosophy, actually. And then very early on, I realized that Anglo-American philosophy had essentially painted itself into a corner that it could not get out from. That was what was called the, the language approach to philosophy, which basically said that all of science was outside of academic philosophy of the Anglo-American kind. And so from that point onward, philosophers essentially became, I'm going to say this, even though it's critical of people that I like and respect, uh, philosophy essentially became a very defensive kind of a thing. Uh, defensive in that it had to play a second role to empirical research? Well, that's very much true, yes. Uh, you have to remember that uh, philosophy was never separate from natural science until about 1900. Because if you read William James's uh, great book, The Principles, something like, I'm guessing, uh, 80, 90% of that book is purely empirical. 
it covers a huge amount of research that was done in the 19th century. Psychophysics was part of it, but Wilhelm Wundt was a very great experimentalist and done a lot of work on uh, selective attention, for example, and on the integration interval of sensory information, which is usually less than 100 milliseconds. Uh, and this was very clever because the technology, of course, was very simple at that time. Um, and also, uh, there are people who, who understood a great deal and had read very widely. Uh, philosophy, the philosophy of mind, I should say, really starts with Aristotle. And Aristotle was an empiricist. He was a naturalist. And he described the conscious mind, which was all he knew. He didn't know about the unconscious. Uh, there's a lot of unconscious stuff going on, of course. But mm -hmm. Aristotle knew uh, and explored in a very intelligent way. He was a great, great scientist. And in the 4th century BC, he wrote a book that is now translated quite differently from the way it used to be translated. The current translation, as I understand it, the biopsychology of the conscious mind. And that's a recent translation. That, that book came to be known as On the Soul in English translation. But of course, the word soul kept on changing. And by the 19th century, it was already a discredited notion because it fell victim to the war between science and religion of the 19th century. So, so the word soul became utterly misleading uh, and people tried to deal with it by using the Latin or maybe even using the Greek, but uh, that didn't help very much because those were also ambiguous words. What Aristotle was talking about as a very plain and straightforward naturalist, he was talking about the mind as he could study it and, of course, collect all kinds of other opinions on it uh, introspectively uh, so that the, the, the five senses, for example, were part of Aristotle's way of thinking about the mind. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. They are very, very important senses, vision, hearing, olfaction, taste, uh, touch, uh, but of course, we now think of those senses as much more complex uh, because we understand much more about the physiology of those senses. And we also have an inner sense that we know about, which is the, uh, it's not quite clear uh, how to call this, but this is the sense that would include feelings of nausea, for example. And today it is associated with a piece of cortex called the insular cortex, and especially the anterior half of the insular cortex. And like other aspects of cortex, this one has a left half and a right half that are intimately connected to each other. Uh, so we actually have a, a very good grasp empirically right now uh, on these inner senses that have to do with and love and despair and fear and uh, all these things that we refer to the inner body, uh, even though uh, their sources are much more complex. 
so, so we actually have some wonderful work right now on the, what we could call the, the gut sense, the gut feeling sense or something like that. Uh, because we know something about the anatomy and the physiology of that structure. Uh, but of course, it's all over human poetry and songs. And in fact, I would guess half the songs, half the popular songs that you can hear on the radio are about, you know, you hurt my feelings because I loved you, but you didn't love me, something along those lines. Uh, and that's very much part of the common experience of humanity. Anyway, so, so there were, uh, Aristotle thought there were five senses, and they were all external senses, very, very important. And then, of course, by the 19th century, if you skip way far ahead, uh, you get all kinds of empirical work being done. Uh, on the sensory systems that were fairly easy for people to experiment with. So yeah, so in the so so nineteenth century, so start of empirical psychology. So you mentioned a couple, a couple different researchers that are pursuing this. So Vont is pursuing it, and Helmholtz is pursuing it, starting out the project of psychophysics relating the, the mental to uh, uh, exactly yes uh, an objective description. So, so if if philosophy and psychology are mostly convergent during, you know, up until the twentieth century, as you mentioned, I wonder, have you found philosophy, uh, other philosophy, recently to be helpful or useful? And and also, I mean, I guess I'm getting at the these distinctions how consciousness is talked about in a different way, you know, so. Thomas Nagel or uh, Chalmers, who are who 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 think of consciousness as possibly ineffable or something that that can't be described, maybe sharpens that divide that that Descartes started out with. I wonder if you find some of these things helpful. I mean, say you know Nagel's "What It's Like to Be a Bat" or you know any of these sort of recent arguments about consciousness that 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 are mainly thought experiments but don't necessarily take a lot of the details into consideration yes you're exactly right uh, i think it's pretty horrible actually uh and and i find it uh, to be repetitive and uh, and not very informative but there are exceptions to that uh, there is a battle going on uh, within philosophy that has to do with what philosophy is going to be about. Uh, and that is a new battle, uh, which is the odd thing about the word philosophy at this point uh, means at least two different things. One of them is what Anglo-American philosophers redefined it as after 1900, as you were saying. And the other one is what real philosophers have done since Aristotle and long before, which is essentially develop the basis of what we call empirical science, because empirical science is nothing but uh, ancient philosophy, if you will. And uh, at some point uh, in physics, for example, uh, as physicists who were called natural philosophers, by the way, because Isaac Newton, for example, was a natural philosopher in the same sense that Charles Darwin uh, was a naturalist. Uh, 
I don't think he, he necessarily had to look into it. Uh, he necessarily saw a, a great wall between himself and Aristotle, for example, who essentially began this, this coherent study of biology in the Western history of ideas so that we still uh, use the uh, labeling of species. Uh, we still use that, which goes back to Aristotle's notion of a classification. How do you classify animals? Um, how do you classify mammals? Mammals are animals that give birth to, to live young. Uh, and that was a very nice way to, to talk about that. And what we call the Linnaean uh, labeling of species uh, really is an application of Aristotle's thought from 24 centuries ago. So there's a lot of continuities there. Uh, and poor old Descartes, Descartes poor guy, uh, I think he's gotten totally uh, misinterpreted, but I would have to talk to somebody who understands a lot more about him than I do. But we have to remember that it was Descartes who worked out the optics of the mammalian eye. Uh, so he went to his. He local does get a, he, <laughs> he does get a bad he does get a bad rap. It's true. Yes, it's a terrible thing. And of course, he was a genius in mathematics. He, he, was, uh, he, he was a theologian, which at that time was a terribly important thing. Uh, and I have no idea why he is sort of smeared these days with uh, this mind-body separation, because I don't think, as far as I can tell, you know, as an amateur, as far as I can tell, I don't think he was really that much into mind-body separation. Yeah. My understanding was that, you know, from my philosophy courses back in uh, college, was that he was sort of carving that out as a way to create some space to do the work that he wanted to do rather than something that he necessarily was super invested in, to your point. Um, it's interesting, yes. And, and again, uh, this would be worth... Uh, Finding a historian, particularly, who, who studies that kind of stuff uh, with real care. Uh, so, because I, I shared your feeling, actually, that um, Descartes got in a bad rap. So, I mean, think, thinking back to the, uh, you know, the more empirical side of things, as, you know, we're, uh, it kind of brings us together, this conversation, the, the cognitive science, uh, neuroscience of consciousness. What is the processing that's happening unconsciously? What is the processing that's happening consciously? Right. And what's the distinction there? And I guess when I was looking at your work, just uh, reviewing your book uh, just recently, um, it, it occurred to me like the question of, given that there is so much processing happening unconsciously yes. that you're not aware of, and it's it is yeah. intelligent. It's it is is useful. It's it's uh, it's helpful for the organism, and it's it's a you lot bet. of the processing that we're doing is mm -hmm. that kind of intelligent, as you say, unconscious processing. What then is the purpose of conscious processing? Why would you have it? Right, exactly, uh, and that is the question uh, that once you do the right experiments, right meaning binocular rivalry or this very beautiful work that's been done for decades now by the French lab 
uh, and by a number of other labs, I should say, should really give credit to a lot of people, many more than I have time for. Uh, but a lot of people have jumped on this bandwagon uh, by doing what I called contrastive analysis experiments. Uh, and the basic idea is very simple, of course. Uh, you're contrasting something that is conscious in the sense that your subject can report it and do stimulus matching and all those other tasks that human beings can do with a sensory, conscious sensory perception. Um, and then you feed in the identical stimulus into the identical uh, foveal part of the retina. Uh, and what you find out is that it is not conscious, but it is being processed. So if you follow the research line that's been pursued by the French uh, group the, um, at the uh, Centre National de Recherche Scientifique, uh, by Dehan uh, and Changeux, uh, what you find out basically is that the conscious stream, or the 2B conscious stream, if you will, uh, explodes in size. It starts to resonate very nicely the way uh, cortical activities can easily res resonate with each other because resonance is the operating code, if you will, uh, of cortex. Uh, and then the unconscious stream is also being processed high up in the visual hierarchy. But by the time you get to object perception or gestalt perception, it starts to kind of wither away. Uh, and that is, uh, that's what you are hoping to find out, of course, by setting up these experiments. And the particular article that I like particularly from that group is uh, first authored uh, by a man named Gaillard. Uh, and Gaillard um, did very, very sophisticated uh, studies of those two streams of input processing in the visual cortex. Uh, using uh, very direct uh, electrodes on the cortex, basically. Uh, so you don't have to worry about EEG or anything else like that because you've got your electrodes almost, uh, uh, almost on the source of the major amount of uh, electromagnetic radiation coming from the head. Uh, if you do scalp uh, EEG, uh, you get all kinds of difficult uh, difficult evidence, but scalp EEG turns out to be only uh, turns out to have filtered out, I should say, ninety nine point nine percent of the signal of the voltage uh, at the cortex, and so you're much better off if you can somehow get human patients, and this requires a lot of ethical consideration, of course, uh, but you can find human patients. Uh, who need uh, surgical operations while they are awake and able to respond to direct stimulation on cortex. And, uh, and so that was done by Gayar and people working with him. But it goes back to Wilder Penfield, if you remember. Uh, Penfield and Roberts uh, published uh, a book about this, but it actually started uh, when Penfield uh, received the support from 
the Canadian government and his colleagues at the Montreal Neurological Institute, and that started as early as 1934. Uh, and Penfield basically uh, talked to his patients while they were only locally anesthetized in the in the section, the part of the um, skull that had been removed, and you had to put that in a sort of a flap so that the blood supply would be maintained uh, to all the tissue, because otherwise, if you don't have blood supply, of course, then the tissue dies. And, and they did a very, very competent job as early as 1934, and then found out with a little bit of voltage applied to cortex itself, uh, there were actual conscious experiences that the patients who were awake and out in, not in pain, uh, that the patients could report. Uh, and the main um, discovery of that time that we still think about in, in, in those terms, of course, is the, uh, is the sensory homunculus. Uh, the homunculus is, is a word for little man or little human being, uh, which refers to the map, the cortical map of the external uh, body. Uh, and basically what happens is that if you uh, stimulate the hand area of the sensory homunculus, uh, people tell you, I feel something on my hand. Uh, and in other situations, they'll tell you, you know, other things that correspond extremely well to these uh, areas of cortex that were, for the first time in history, being mapped. And there's no question that they were conscious of the sensory events. Uh, there's a lot more uh, to be said about that because this was a research program that developed, um, oh, from the, I think, late 20s to the 1950s. Uh, and uh, this, and there were as many as 1,200 epileptic adult subjects who were studied in those operations, and they were the people, of course, who were in terrible trouble because of seizures, and that provided an ethical uh, ground for engaging in these rather. Uh, risky operations. I don't think they actually lost any people due to operative failures, technical failures, uh, but the people themselves, of course, were at risk of death because of these horrible seizures that ruined their lives. And that made it ethically, uh, medically acceptable uh, to work uh, on these human beings, 1,200 of them, um, and their individual medical records have, are, are still protected today uh, for, because the ethical criteria of the, uh, of the time made it necessary to protect their privacy. Uh, the only one we know uh, from that series or from a closely related series, actually not the same surgical team, uh, but very much uh, a, a part of that time, is the patient called H.M., uh, whose real name was Henri Molaison, or uh, Henry Molaison, I think uh, you could pronounce it. In Canada, you have two languages, of course. 
So Henri uh, Molaison, known as H.M., uh, was studied, as you know, of course, uh, for decades, uh, going from one laboratory to another laboratory to see what it was like to be in his head. And basically, uh, H.M. received an extremely radical surgery and that excised the hippocampi uh, on both sides of his brain. And this was a, a revelatory uh, patient. Uh, and H.M. basically was unable to store, he, he was conscious, he was in a sensory way. Uh, and in it, he had a capacity to, comp to comprehend, I believe. Uh, but he was unable to take his consciousness and store it in a way that he could use later on. So H.M. is a kind of a radical discovery in psychology and brain science. He, he was not replicated, I believe, not in humans, in animal studies, yes, uh, because it was such a, uh, such a desperate kind of surgery. And, and there was a lot of medical debate about whether that radical surgery should even have been done. Because after all, he, he lost his ability to learn from his conscious experiences. So he was not a success story uh, on strict medical grounds. For science, though, uh, I think, and you can tell me if you agree or not, uh, I think that HM was really a breakthrough patient. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as we're thinking about... Um you know, the, the question of the role of consciousness in, you know, uh, human cognitive processing. Uh, you know, HM is an interesting example because in some sense he can report on the things that he just heard. He can process that information uh, apparently, but cannot remember that information later. Right. So mm -hmm. memory is, is one way that you can explore uh, consciousness. But yes. consciously, too, and he had that dissociation between implicit memory formation and explicit memory formation. So he could uh, improve on tasks, but he couldn't, uh, he didn't have that declarative sense of remembering that it was him doing it. Right. And that's extremely important. Uh, there's so much depth uh, in the discoveries of, of that time, and, and so much that you kind of need to think through. Uh, a lot because it's not so obvious what that means. Uh, anyway, the, the, I think the quick answer in terms of the difference between conscious and unconscious input processing uh, comes from the, uh, the Paris group, um, which actually represents a number of other groups, but I'm just going to mention them uh, to focus on, on one excellent uh, research group that's been going for 20 years or longer, uh, and so they have really worked out the, these tricky procedures. And essentially what they have ended up with uh, is a 100 millisecond presentation of a visual object or event. Uh, and, uh, and you can actually take in 100 milliseconds uh, because, uh, for example, if you look at a, a flash, a flash that you get these days from a cell phone camera, uh, that flash is extremely fast. It's on the order of milliseconds, uh, and uh, but it lasts 
for a much longer time. And that means that we have more time to report it and think about it and look at the changes and the conscious percept. Uh, so they did this uh, much more carefully uh, and much uh, with much better defined stimuli for the 100 milliseconds of presentation uh, and then followed it uh, by 100 milliseconds of the identical input, visual input into the retina, uh, but in a way that was masked um, in what's called uh, um, backward uh, masking mm -hmm. and because we can now see what's happening in the brain during the conscious and the unconscious input uh, identical input in the conscious case you get what uh, the researchers call an ignition which i called a broadcast uh, way back when um, but i like the word ignition actually uh, because it is uh, closer to the reality. Broadcasting is a kind of a uh, media metaphor, and it turns out that it is actually quite meaningful, I think, to talk in terms of an intrapsychic media uh, where uh, you have a sort of a society on the inside, which is a very, very popular idea that poets and playwrights have come up with it for a long time, um, and the internal society uh, of uh, processes has similarities uh, to the external society in which we live. Uh, and one of the ways in which our society is controlled, of course, is by way of media. And they may be social media, they may be private telephone calls from one to one person, uh, but there is a genuine role for uh, what I call the global broadcast because I got that idea from Alan Newell and his work on very, very good work uh, in artificial intelligence and speech perception. He came out with that in 1976, I believe. Uh, and his book on, on that is very important because he essentially proposed the same thing. Uh, but Newell was still, I think, unable to talk about consciousness, uh, which is a, an oddity because it was a kind of taboo that was imposed upon psychological science uh, by the school of behaviorism, uh, very much supported by, uh, by the logical positivist philosophers in England. Uh, who also criticized the idea of mind and the idea of consciousness quite viciously uh, so that people, frankly, didn't want to touch the subject. But of course, uh, not touching consciousness is a kind of violation of all the other philosophical traditions that we know. And, and I want to reemphasize that what we call philosophy traditionally is also a very empirical enterprise. There was really no division between speculative thinking and analyzing words and what they really mean, all that stuff, and actual experiments. So that in the Indian tradition, for example, you have philosophers who are constantly thinking about their, their practices. Uh, the term, I think, uh, I have to be corrected on this also, uh, the Sanskrit term, 
term for this, I think, is that there is no philosophy without practice, uh, which is quite different uh, from the way Anglo-American philosophy uh, turned out after 1900. Uh, But I think that uh, for the long term of philosophical thought, which is essentially identical to the history of ideas in the West and in Asia, for the long, long term, people did all kinds of empirical stuff uh, because nobody told them not to. And so what we get with Descartes as one example, of course, is is this fabulous um, experimental work that he did in excising an eyeball from a sheep's uh, head, apparently. He used oxen and sheep at various times, and that's important because they had big eyeballs, of course. And then he would scrape off the back, which only leaves what is called the sclera, which is this tough white tissue, which functions essentially as a projection screen. Uh, So then if you point uh, the lens of the eyeball um, at a brightly lit object at noon when there's nice bright sunshine uh, in Paris, Uh, What you see is the object that you're pointing to projected onto the sclera, but upside down. And that, of course, was a mind-boggling discovery for that generation because they did not have the idea that you could process information uh, independently from the way it would have looked uh, onto the back of the eyeball. But nevertheless, what Descartes ended up with was exactly what empiricists always end up with, I think, which is a bunch of puzzles, which he couldn't really understand. But he had the wit and the honesty, I think, to say that. And, for example, he couldn't figure out why the exposed cortex seemed to consist of two halves, Uh, when in fact he knew perfectly well, and this was already known to Aristotle, of course, that our perception of the world is coherent and integrated, and it's internally consistent, so that we see the world as if there are coherent objects like the people we see or the cars we see or anything else for that matter. And we know, of course, by now that this is a, a creation of cortex, It's not that the input in our sensory systems comes in in a coherent way. Sometimes it does. Most of the time it doesn't. Uh, But if you think of being a rabbit, for example, trying to scurry across a field, most of the things that you see are grass uh, or these huge uh, uh, leaves and bushes and so on. And, And the part that you can actually see clearly you may just see with one eye. And then somehow you have to fill in the rest because you have to make your way through that field before the dogs get you or the cats get you or the the owls get you. Uh, So rodents, uh, rabbits, and so on always have to be scurrying. uh, And that means they get very little exposure to really good information. Uh, But then I think what they do very often is they go to ground They find an underground tunnel. Uh, They relax from all the fright of having to scurry across the field. 
And then I believe they have to replay what they think they saw. If they thought they saw a snake, uh, they have to analyze that information. They have to start sampling the smells and the tastes uh, of that moment and the movements of what they thought was a snake. And humans, of course, uh, we now know, have a specialized snake circuit in our brains that resides in the two amygdalas. And because snakes are so dangerous to human beings, there's plausibly a biological story there uh, that we must, by now, be able to pass that on genetically. Uh, Let me bring up a question about animals. So thinking about animal consciousness again, one of the things that the conception of consciousness that you're describing here has is that it relies on a a sufficiently advanced cortex and uh, and your theory relies, or the neuronal version of of the theory relies on this resonance between the neocortex and the thalamus. I guess one of the tricky questions about this is how do you disentangle ethical considerations of consciousness from a pure scientific description of what's going on consciously. Because if it takes a mammalian brain in order to uh, perform these operations, it sort of implies that something, and you know, I, I thought of this as you were talking about a snake, um, it implies that something uh, without that sort of feedback loop or without that capacity is not conscious. Right. Um, uh, now, it, go ahead. We, we wouldn't want to think, I mean, we wouldn't, you know, from an, a value standpoint, I mean, consciousness has a, a really particular value attached to it. Uh, yes. and, you know, some philosophers would say that, you know, without consciousness, there's nothing because there's no apprehension. There's no, there's no one, there's no one in the universe to sort of understand it. Right. So if, if we're making a cutoff in consciousness in this way, what does that, does that say anything ethically about, um, say, creatures that don't have this capacity? Or does it say something about the way that cognition could go on in a snake or you know, a creature where you, you might not have that same sort of dynamic um, competing for consciousness? Well, you're raising the right questions, obviously. Um, you know, scientists are not particularly comfortable with ethics, and, and we certainly don't have any uh, claim to authority uh, when it comes to ethics, because we can claim authority based on evidence, which is not our authority, it's the authority of the evidence. Uh, but then you run into these ethical problems and they're really unavoidable. Uh, we cannot avoid them. Inherently, that becomes very tough. Uh, and I take some some wisdom, I think, from the late, the late, very great scientist, Jörg Panksepp, who uh, investigated uh, and wrote books about affective neuroscience. Jörg was the guy who, who discovered what we should have all known but didn't know, that uh, rat pups... And rat moms, when they are lactating, uh, when the when the rat pup is is drinking milk from the mom, uh, that they communicate, uh, and because of the size of their bodies, uh, they communicate in very high pitched ways, uh, 
and really above the human hearing range so that the human experimenters who, who worked with rat pups and rat moms uh, actually did not realize uh, that they were constantly calling to each other in very much the same way that human moms and babies constantly stay in touch, if, uh, both physically in touch by touching and by breastfeeding and by cooing and eye contact and all these ways in which mammals keep in touch with their babies. Uh, what Jack basically found was that we, when he rigged up a little contraption to turn very high frequency sounds into audible frequencies for human beings, that he could hear the rat moms and pups calling uh, to each other. And they have alarm calls, they have uh, I'm here baby calls uh, that, that, that goes squeak, uh, orient to the sound. Now comes closer to the sound, squeak. Uh, like that, and, and the baby will wander back to the mom if it is going to survive. So all this is very, very uh, basic mammalian behavior. And Jacques, uh, I think, did wonderful pioneering work and, and was very deeply concerned with the question of the, of the way we treat animals. So he spent, I believe, something like the last 10 years of his career working on that question. How do we deal with particularly the animals we use for food? So how would you see the relation here? Um, It's hard to ask this question, but how would you, um, you know, if you're looking at, uh, maybe just personally, if you're looking at different animals, you're thinking about, say, a cow, a dog, a sheep, uh, you know, a goldfish, uh, a worm. Yes, that's exactly the right question. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, we know that we've got these recurrent networks in these mammals, and we know that the brain of a fish looks quite different. There's not this kind of global sharing going on so that it may be operating in a very different way. How does that, how, how does that inform any ethics that you may have of well, the treatment? Well, I used to be completely skeptical because I couldn't figure out a way, apparently, uh, to, to answer those kinds of questions. And then I started to read the comparative biologists on this thing. Uh, these comparative people, what they do basically is they study the evolution of species and, and their relationship to each other. Uh, and, uh, and the conventional viewpoint in brain science, and I'm talking about early brain science, uh, even before Santiago Ramon y Cajal discovered the neuron because after all we have anatomy and we have all kinds of interesting sources of information that go back much earlier. And the convention in medicine, because in medicine of course this becomes a very practical thing because you, you learn about the body by doing dissections, it goes back as early as Hippocrates in the 4th century BCE. And he basically says, whatever you are conscious of, whatever your emotions are, come from the brain. And so in medicine, I think that was kind of the heuristic, the the rule of thumb, that it was probably cortex that did the thing. They studied lots and lots of trauma victims uh, and stroke victims, all that kind of stuff. 
uh, and they they developed uh, some very good intuitions, but very often they couldn't prove it uh, because to prove these things with cortex, especially because cortex is such a flexible organ and so adaptable, um, it it is very difficult to do uh, what I think of as automobile engineering. You know, because when your engine is running rough, uh, what you do is you, you pull out spark plugs and clean them up and stick them back in and see if it's better. And that is kind of the intuitively easy approach to the way things work. And a lot of the time, engineers are right. But biology is different because biology has to build in backups. Uh, you don't get a chance to fix your spark plugs uh, if you get injured and, and you're uh, Homo sapiens, let's say, 100,000 years ago. And, and your friends are not going to fix your spark plugs either. So what the brain has done over eons of development uh, is uh, build in all kinds of uh, backups. Uh, and uh, Jerry Edelman, who I had the privilege of uh, working with for uh, about a dozen years, talked about this as a very fundamental aspect of all biological systems because he studied it at many different levels. He started off with the immune proteins, the, the learned immune, acquired immunity system, uh, which involves proteins that stick into the membranes of the uh, immune cells and bloodstream, and those proteins uh, actually evolve to recognize uh, invading organisms and invading proteins, toxins. And that is a learning process, uh, oddly enough, so that if we're exposed to COVID-19 these days, uh, most of us will never notice it uh, because our acquired immunity system learns to recognize those toxic invaders and learns to protect against this so that by the time uh, uh, our membrane proteins have figured out the crucial shape of maybe that little spike in the, in the protein of the COVID uh, uh, virus, and it picks that up, it learns that, uh, and then it generates hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of copies. Uh, and that is the great immune response uh, where you get white cells essentially killing all the copies of the invading virus that it can find. And if that happens early enough in the incubation process of COVID, it's being handled uh, by your body. But then the crisis comes, as you know, later on, and the the crisis that kills people in COVID is essentially the explosion of white cells that uh, involve an overreaction of the immune system. So uh, this goes back to Jerry Edelman, who discovered uh, this principle and got a Nobel Prize for it in the 1970s. And it started him thinking in a very biological way because his heuristic in finding the membrane proteins that pick up these novel toxins, his heuristic was really Darwinian thinking. 
so that he thought that the immune system, or at least the learned immune system, was a kind of a Darwinian selection with variation. Let me see, selection with reproduction and variation, and then uh, reselection, because now you're selecting the successful next generation uh, proteins or cells or, or animals for that matter. Uh, so he thought that the same basic principles uh, occurred at many levels uh, of biology. And that has been a very, very important heuristic. And uh, it's, it's now part of uh, uh, neural net uh, technology. So, uh, so Jerry uh, really persuaded me that that was a very important point of view. The cortex does exactly that. Uh, that was Jerry's point of view, which he uh, also wrote in a nice book around 2000 with Giulio Tononi, A Universe of Consciousness. Cortex uh, turns out to be selectionist in, in very similar ways to which the learned immune system is selectionist and Darwinian evolution is selectionist. Uh, and that, uh, that was a profound insight, I think. Uh, and now we get to the question that people came at anatomically over history in quite a different way, because Hippocrates already knew about the cortex, because it's the first thing you see when you take the cranium off. Hippocrates got to see a lot of uh, trauma victims, the school of Hippocrates, uh, actually figured out that uh, there is a, a cross-linking of the motor cortex, so that if you stimulate the right hand uh, motor cortex of the right hemisphere, the left arm or the left hand uh, can move. And that was the realization that was actually made in the 4th century BC, purely empirically, by people who were doing very, very intelligent uh, clinical medicine. Uh, and, and so the idea that cortex is the, uh, is the organ of mind is a very ancient idea because it is true to a considerable extent. But then, of course, the really hard evidence didn't really show up. Uh, in my mind, it didn't really show up until Penfield started to stimulate the brains of these uh, epileptic patients in 1934. Uh, and then he got 1,200 poor adult epileptics, these poor people who were going to die from seizure disease, and their lives were intolerable anyway, even if they were not going to die directly from them. Uh, and so they allowed themselves to be operated on in these careful and, and ethical, but very experimental ways. Um, and that's essentially the basis uh, with the reservation, of course, that nobody has ever gotten to see the records from those 1,200 patients. But in a sense, that's water on the bridge right now. It's irrelevant because other people, epileptologists of all kinds, have started to do these surgeries. It's become a sort of a routine thing. Uh, and you can now just go to PubMed uh, or some other 
biomedical archive and look up uh, direct uh, cortical recording, uh, for example, which is mostly done with these kinds of uh, human surgeries. And then, of course, uh, a great many surgeries in macaque monkeys, maybe some chimps, uh, but also other mammals, because it turns out that mammals say this, but it's true, uh, mammals are conscious because mammals have neocortex. And that started more than 200 million years ago, uh, which I thought was rather shocking, actually, until I started to talk with people in Jerry's orbit. Um, and everybody kind of believed it, but very few people were willing to publish about it. Uh, because it's such a radical claim, it might upset people, it would upset people, certainly. And of course, you get, you know, we're all ethical sinners, basically, because we eat those creatures, right? Uh, we eat rabbits, we eat cows, we eat horses, we eat all kinds of conscious creatures. Mm -hmm. Let me circle back um, around to, so earlier you you were talking about differences between an engineered thing and uh, a product of evolution. Right. So um, difficulty in trying to understand exactly, you know, what uh, functional role something might have or, you know, because of the sort of long accumulation of different traits. Um, and, you know, uh, just being mindful of our time here too, well, one of the things that we think about on this show is the ways in which are <clears throat> the ways in which anybody can be responsible for uh, leading to uh, right uh, <laughs> negative or, or unanticipated consequences of their work. So uh, the thing that we sort of jokingly talk about a little bit is yes. how does your work um, eventually lead to the to the robo apocalypse or the the end of the world as it's taken over by AI? And I think. Of, you know, of your research and your work as, you know, in the worst case scenario, I suppose you could think of as uh, uh, blueprints for how to create a conscious <laughs> computer. Yes. Uh, thank you for raising that. We is, don't want to make you responsible for the, the apocalypse eventually, but <laughs> I'm just curious as to as to your thought. And this I guess this goes to um, to the direction of conscious computers, too. Um, how your how you how your cognitive theories have interacted with artificial intelligence ideas of consciousness right and it's one of those things where you think you're working on a scientific problem and maybe you make a little progress and suddenly the word world goes crazy and and starts to you know starts to fantasize and maybe starts to do some pretty horrible things uh, based on what you thought was ethical and, and, mm -hmm. and reasonably modest uh, work. Uh, I find that rather shocking. Uh, and of course, a lot of it is so speculative that uh, it's hardly worth talking about. Uh, but, uh, but I do worry, for example, uh, that we now have a new behaviorism because uh, now it turns out that anything that can act like a human being uh, must be conscious, and that's absurd. Obviously, there, that is there something particular you're referring to with that? With that yeah, I, I hate to say it because my good friend Stan Franklin uh, uh, started that. He's an AI 
is really a mathematician at heart who started to do artificial intelligence and has really expanded on global workspace theory to make it more of a complete uh, cognitive architecture, which is important uh, because it's not just conscious. There's a whole bunch of other apparatus that you need. But Stan, uh, Stan confuses a simulation uh, with the reality. Uh, and I find that troubling. Uh, I talked to him about it. He keeps on going back uh, to his view that global workspace theory is equivalent to consciousness, whereas I'm much more uh, of a you know, trained skeptic in experimental science and so on. Uh, and I will not simply uh, jump to that kind of conclusion. I think it's way, way out of our orbit right now. Uh, and what we see is uh, people talking about conscious computing uh, when what we actually know empirically about consciousness is actually fairly modest. It's yeah. not zero, but it's certainly not something that we're ready to, you know, stick into silicon and, uh, and pretend is actually an experiencing human being. It's not. Well, I think that might be a good place to end things. Um, are there any last things that you'd like to get in? Or Joe, are there any questions that you had that you'd like to ask? just wanted to uh, say, uh, Bernie, to thank you. And uh, wanted to, again, mention the, the new book that, that is out. On consciousness. <laughs> All right, on consciousness. On consciousness. Yeah, so go out and get the book. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate you guys, by the way, for many reasons. One of them is that we are thinking in similar directions, including the ethics, but also the science.